welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Katherine Drinkett. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Today we have Dr. Craig Duvall with us, who is an assistant professor at Vanderbilt University in biomedical engineering. Welcome. Hello. We have a broad audience for this podcast where some of our listeners are undergraduates. Could you provide a perspective on your graduate work in biomedical engineering at Georgia Institute of Technology and Emory University? Any specific advice for undergraduates on how best to navigate a successful PhD? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So. I came out of sort of a non-traditional program where I was actually studying as an undergrad biosystems and agricultural engineering. So my undergrad institution, uh, the University of Kentucky, had a graduate program in biomedical engineering, but they did not have an undergraduate uh, program. So I had a little bit more of a diverse undergrad Hmm. training that wasn't specifically in biomedical engineering, but it had a focus in biomedical engineering. So I was able to do some classwork and some research with professors in the Biomedical Engineering Center that were there at the University of Kentucky as part of the grad program. So, you know, I was able to sort of tailor it in that direction, but definitely not, um, you know, a tried and true biomedical engineering mm-hmm. uh, degree like a lot of the, the students have now. Because, you know, there's uh, been a, a pretty wide growth in the number of undergrad um, BME programs in the last 10 years. Um, but in terms of how I was actually prepared for grad school or sort of my advice for getting into grad school and navigating grad school. I think the best thing to do in terms of preparing as an undergraduate for going to grad school is is probably obvious, which is doing research. And I think that means different things to different students when they hear it. To some students, that means like, oh, I have a line on my resume now where I can say I've actually walked through the doors of a research lab. Um, that is not really impactful if you want to go to, you know, a really top-ranked department like Georgia Tech or like Vanderbilt, where I am now. Um, You know, I'm kind of on the other side of the coin now as a faculty member, and I'm reviewing applications and and deciding who gets admitted to our program. And really, the students who get admitted, you know, they typically have a good GPA, good GRE, but we don't fixate on that. That's really, um, you know, a student who has a 4.0, who has really shown really little productivity or experience in research, is usually doesn't necessarily get admitted to our program. But a student who, you know, is scholastically strong but has real meaningful experience and has marketable outcomes from their research, they can say, I contributed to this project in this very definitive way, and I did this set of experiments, and that gave me, um, you know, or I earned authorship on a paper, or I went and presented at BMES with my, with my undergrad department or maybe through an RU program. Those are the students that we can tell are actually really motivated to do research and aren't necessarily just going, you know, in lockstep with everyone else and say, okay, this is the next step. I graduated. Now I'm going to go to grad school. And so we want, we want to really try to tease out and find those students who we can tell are really passionate about what, what they're doing and who have actually made it a high priority to get involved in research in a meaningful way as an undergrad. And so I think that's the biggest thing in terms of getting into grad school. And then in terms of once you actually get to grad school, I mean, there's really no replacement for, for hard work. <laughs> and I, I think if there's one thing that I would recommend to every student off the bat in graduate school, and one thing that I try to preach to my students now at Vanderbilt, and that is to take accountability. This is not um, undergrad anymore where 
you know, a lab, you do something and it may or may not work and you write it up in your lab report and you move on. It's not like that. When you, when you go to grad school, you want to find a project that you're excited and passionate about and that when it fails, you, th you take personal accountability for that. And it's my job to figure out, why did this not work? What can I do next? What's the right ne next troubleshooting step to actually get this project to work? And I think that's the hardest transition that I see in terms of, you know, undergrads who are really promising and come in really excited um, versus once they're two or three years in and they're really cranking and they're really starting to impress me is usually when that switch sort of flips and they're like all of a sudden, okay, this experiment didn't work. And so I think this is the next step. And so I did this experiment and this is where I am. What do you think, you know, about my approach? That's when I'm really impressed by a graduate student. When a graduate student says, okay, I did this experiment on Monday and Tuesday and I know it's Friday. And so now we're here at our meeting and here's my experiment that didn't work. What do you think I should do next? That's, that's, that's a, that's not, you know, that's sort of the maturation that occurs yeah. with, with students is like when they say, okay, this project is my responsibility and it's my, and I'm accountable for figuring out how to make this work. Um, and so I think that's one of the biggest things in terms of students and being able to really, the students who really excel at grad school. And is that something that you sometimes need to communicate to a student or do you just expect students to, to get it? Because I, I would think some students might naturally um, gravitate towards that, that level of maturity and say, I'm taking ownership, I, I want to drive this project. And some might need a little bit more guidance um, yeah, that's exactly and, and, right. And they could still achieve that, but they need to be told, look, you know, this is what I'm looking for you. Um, right now, we're at this stage. I'm expecting in six months for you to be at this stage and to be able to anticipate the next set of experiments. Right. And I think this kind of goes back to what I was saying um, initially, and that's having real research experience as an undergrad where you worked on yeah. a project and didn't just maybe wash the glassware in a lab for a couple of weeks, but you actually had a part of a project that you called your own. And I think there's a process to that that you have to have some amount of exposure to before you get it, right? And so I think part of that is exposure. And then there are some students who are just very inquisitive, naturally, right? And yeah. whether you tell them to or not, they really want to find out the answer, and they're going to push to find the answer no matter what. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a gradient there. Um, and I think the best thing you can do from my perspective is, is make students aware like this is the expectation this is what you'll this is how you'll be operating sort of once you're really up to speed and, and are operating the way I expect you to yeah. operate as a grad student for your postdoctoral fellowship in bioengineering you chose the University of Washington uh, where you worked on smart polymers for intracellular delivery of peptide drugs protein antigens and small interfering RNAs what led you to choose this uh, exciting area of research? You know, I did actually look pretty broadly for postdocs, which I think a lot of times postdoc searches are focused on or directed by the contacts of the PhD advisor. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that absolutely was a factor in my decision. And, and, you know, what led me to the University of Washington was an existing relationship with my PhD advisor at Georgia Tech and my postdoc advisor at University of Washington. And that was absolutely necessary um, to help me get my foot in the door. But I did actually look pretty broadly in different areas because as a graduate student, um, my, my project was um, – there were some technology development related to it, but it was more 
um, related to uh, development of some imaging methodologies for high resolution quantitative imaging of vasculature in, in, in vivo models. Um, but really the big focus of my, my projects, it was really, really basic science focus where I was working with transgenic animals and, and trying to really tease out um, some, some basic science hypothesis um, versus even though I worked in a tissue engineering lab, I wasn't really doing tissue engineering and technology development as a grad student. Uh, and, mm. and so I wasn't really developing new biomaterials. And that's one thing that I saw is kind of a gap in my training is like I really want to be innovative on the biomaterials yeah. front. I don't want to be someone who can measure responses to biomaterials or, you know, is really stuck with using like what I can get off the shelf. You know, I want to say I want to be able to figure out, okay, I have this problem. What's the what's the best possible uh, solution I can have for this problem? And even if it's something not off the shelf, how can I go for a more customized solution to develop the biomaterial, the drug delivery system that's going to develop that's going to perform optimally in this context. And, and I felt like, you know, I, I really had to go out and really enhance my training in the polymer chemistry side. And, and with my postdoc advisors, Pat Staten and Alan Hoffman, that's sort of their calling card. That's really what they're really well known for is, is really being their strength there is polymer chemistry. And, and so um, that's really what drove me to go there. And, you know, another thing was just the practical aspects where my postdoc advisor, Pat Staten, had had he had a very active group and a lot of postdocs. Um, so at the time I went in, we, he had almost 10 postdocs in his lab. And these, these folks were from all different backgrounds. And so I really loved that. I was able to learn, because you only see your PI maybe once a week. But I was working alongside these postdocs all day, every day. And I learned so much just from being in the yeah. environment that he had created. So even if I wasn't, you know, learning from him and pulling in, in, information straight out of his head every day, I benefited yeah. so much from this environment that he had established. And so that was another big draw for me, too. And he also had a really good track record with postdoc trainees from his lab going out and getting faculty positions. And sort of he had the connections and the mentorship that seemed to have a really good track record for making that happen. And so there's some practical part there, too, where I was like, okay, there's a really good, obviously a good pathway here, and maybe I can leverage that, too. And so that was a big, that was a yeah. big part of it. Great. So earlier you mentioned BM. ES. We know that you were recently awarded the BMES Young Innovator in Cellular and Molecular Bioengineering Award. Can you briefly tell us a bit more about this award and what it means to you to be recognized as a young investigator in this field? Um, yeah, so the BMES, uh, that specific award is uh, tied to, to BMES, but also tied to one of the journals affiliated with BMES. And so for part of that award, they're they're focusing on submission of a specific manuscript, but then also just your CV in terms of all the things that you've done as an assistant professor and based on your activity with the society. And so that's a particularly meaningful one for me because I am in a biomedical engineering department. And so that's our primary professional society. Those are the people, um, you know, that I, I go to that meeting every year. Uh, take lots of students to present at that meeting every year. And so I think it means a lot in terms of, you know, that's the place where we kind of put ourselves out there and really do the most marketing in terms of, you know, in terms of presentation of our work. So I think it means a lot to be recognized um, by that audience. So as a young investigator, we see that you've trained many graduate students. Could you briefly tell us your philosophy on mentoring these students? And I think we've touched a little bit on this. We don't have to spend too much time, but is there a certain philosophy that, that you um, have with, with mentoring uh, right. your, your graduate students? Yeah, you know, I, 
I think it's it's tricky and it's a balance in terms of mentorship with students because I like to be friendly and jovial with my students, but at the same time you have to uh, make sure that you know you garner the respect for your students and that they're I don't know you know you have to have some professional demeanor as well. So I think that's that's the balance that it took me a while to figure out and also kind of dialing in the right amount of um, how hands-on to be with students because I think. You know, you can maybe get things off the ground faster with a new student or a new project if I'm if I'm in there saying, okay, what are you going to do today? Tell me about your result. What are you going to do today? Every day. And so what I'm trying to foster um, is really trying to find that right balance in terms of um, letting the student work on their own for a bit and teaching the student to think to think on their own. And it kind of goes back to this whole self-accountability yeah. kind of phase where the students um, really learn to say, okay, this is my job to – I did an experiment. I need to think about what does this result mean and what am I going to do next? And so, um, you know, I think the right balance and the thing that I try to focus on is is being available and giving feedback, but having the right balance um, where the students are really kind of out on their own and forced to think and work on their own independently as well. Because, I mean, if I, if I work hands-on with a student every day for four or five years and they get out and they go try to you know, get a job in industry or get a job at another academic institution, they're not going to perform very well if I've held their hand sort of the whole time. So I think that's, I think that's the balance. And, you know, what I try to do is, um, you know, with a new student, spend a little more time, be a little more hands-on, and then sort of dial that back sort of as they go forward. So the first year or two, you know, I'm, I'm meeting with them. I'm giving them more consistent feedback. I'm making sure that I'm a little more tuned in to the day-to-day of their project and then try to sort of pull back from that as they get closer and closer to graduation and make sure they're operating independently. Great. So from your talk today, Smarter Therapies to Improve Transplant Performance and Promote Institute Tissue Repair, you covered some of the main areas of your lab. Could you briefly describe some of your exciting ongoing research? Yeah, so I'll tell you about a couple of the projects in the lab that I'm most excited about right now. And so um, one of the primary projects in the lab, um, sort of towards the former part of that title, about um, enhancing performance of transplanted tissues. Um, So one of the focus areas there is for improving the long-term performance of vascular bypass grafts. And so vascular bypass grafting, you've probably heard or had, maybe had a family member who has to go in for bypass surgery because they have a blockage in their heart in the coronary artery. And so what surgeons currently do is often take out some donor tissue from the saphenous vein in the leg, and they'll actually transplant that tissue into the heart to bypass the, the blocked coronary artery. Um, unfortunately, when you transplant venous tissue into the arterial circulation, there's a lot of surgical manipulation that goes on with that and activates a lot of stress in the tissue. A lot of stress-activated signaling pathways get activated as a result of just the physical manipulation of the tissue. This triggers um, inflammation and phenotypic modulation of the vascular smooth muscle cells in the wall that ultimately uh, leads to formation of a neoentema, um, which is a, a, a new sort of tissue ingrowth into the interior of the lumen of the blood vessel. And this is called intimal hyperplasia. And so unfortunately, a large percentage, almost half of these uh, uh, saphenous vein grafts will fail um, within a couple of years um, by, due to intimal hyperplasia. And so our idea is, is there a way that you can potentially treat the treat the tissue with a drug intraoperatively after it's been taken out of the leg but before it's been implanted into the heart, for example, in a bath in in the OR 
that could sort of block the initiation of these stress-induced pathways and ultimately uh, cause less inflammation to occur, less of this phenotypic modulation in the vascular smooth muscle cells to occur, and to help the tissue to sort of heal and reach a steady state uh, more quickly uh, such that this extensive remodeling and neointima formation doesn't occur. So that's one that we've got some really exciting preclinical animal model results in and one that we're um, uh, hoping to get more funding in very soon to sort of continue to push that towards translation. And so that's one that I'm very excited about. Another regenerative medicine-focused project that I'm really excited about right now is some of our work in skin wound healing. And so we're looking at local delivery of uh, molecules for RNA interference or for gene knockdown um, within the wounds. And in this context, we're looking at knocking down uh, sort of regulators uh, of transcription factors. Transcription factors are these modules in the cell that can control the expression of a variety of often related genes. And so we think by modulating um, the activity at the level of a transcription factor, we can get a very holistic and orchestrated response that will help us to uh, more closely recapitulate what would happen in the healing of a normal wound. And so we think if we can sort of trigger these normal sort of signaling pathways and responses and for example something like a a diabetic wound that won't heal on its own maybe we can uh, sort of jump start the process and and get these wounds to heal more readily good deal we see that you've been successful with acquiring external funding do you have any advice for young investigators in seeking their own funding what has contributed to your success i think in terms of you know my own funding i've targeted i guess nih nsf and dod and also AHA, I guess, are the primary funding agencies that I've had some success in getting funding from. Um, in terms of how to be successful, um, you know, I think, <laughs> you know, that's a tricky one. I think the, the thing that I have benefited from the most um, in terms of when I started Vanderbilt, which has been about six years ago now, is, is finding some senior mentors who have had success um, with funding, you know, from the government agencies, especially NIH. Um, there's a lot of NIH-funded investigators at Vanderbilt and the med school. And I've been fortunate to form partnerships with a couple of folks who are later career and very willing and helpful, uh, willing to mentor me and to sort of take a step back and be sort of selfless in the situation and, and sort of um, help me to develop some project ideas and also with, with the grant writing aspects. Um, without expecting a lot from me in return, at least immediately. Because when you're in a new investigator and trying to start your lab and you're trying to strike up collaborations, you're building from the ground up. You may have one or two students, and they're first-year students. They don't even know how to do anything. And so you really don't have much to give to the equation. And so you really have to find some, some good mentors, and you have to sell them on your vision. And so I think if you can find those folks and sell them on your vision and say, you know, a couple years from now, this is where we'll be at, and this is how I'll be able to to help uh, take your research program into new directions or bring new capabilities online that you wouldn't be able to do right now. And sort of selling them down on that vision. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's definitely kind of a process. You know, I talked to a number of people, and, you know, some of these folks you meet with once or twice, and you can tell it's just, it's just not the right match. But I was lucky to find um, two or three uh, senior investigators, a couple in the med school, and, and one being uh, a senior member of my own Department of Biomedical Engineering that I wrote uh, co-PI or, or you know, a collaborative grants with at the outset, and that, and that helped a ton. For our audience, do you have any take-home messages 
maybe about the field of biomedical engineering or your own research, maybe the motivation you have for your work? Yeah, I think, it, you know, I think almost any answer I give to this question is going to sound kind of cliche, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's most important, you know, to follow your passions and do things you're excited about because it's a lot of work doing research. It's not easy. You know, two-thirds of the experiments you do are going to fail, and that's if you're good. Um, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's if you're <laughs> really good. <laughs> yeah, if you're really good. And so, you know, I think you, you don't want to go into the field of research period if you're not really motivated and you're not really, you know, you got to always keep pushing for those eureka moments that sort of make it all worthwhile. So that's kind of one thing. Um, and then in terms of where the field um, is going, you know, obviously my lab's approach is more on the synthetic biomaterials and, and trying to do biomimicry with uh, fully synthetic systems, systems that can be uh, potentially scaled up and made, um, you know, on industrial scales with, you know, relatively simple processes. And so I think that's the number one goal that, you know, I seek in my lab and I think a lot of us should seek because there's a lot of really cool, nifty things that we can do. Um, but often, you know, keep staying grounded and being like, okay, I could do this really cool, nifty, complex thing that I can do on the scale of like a small animal study and maybe get a really nice paper out of this. But really, where is it going? And so, um, you know, that's one thing that I really sort of strive to, to do. And I think we could all uh, probably continue to improve to, to strive towards. And, and one thing that I think is a strength here at W Firm is, is really when you start a new project, you, could, you should think about what the pathway for that's going to be. Yeah. And is this going to be a translational pathway, or is this just something that's sort of gimmicky that I want to do for a cool paper? Um, and so, you know, I think that's, that's another thing in, in biomedical engineering and, and, and in this field in general that we should try to continuously sort of try, strive towards is, is making sure that we're, we're, we're coming up with ideas that are actually uh, going to help us to achieve our ultimate goal, which is to impact human clinical treatment and human health. Great. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WFIRM News.